morning, everyone. You know, sometimes uh, we sing words to songs, and uh, we just sing them because they're on the screen. Uh, but I hope this morning you are encouraged by the fact that forever God is faithful, forever God is strong, and forever God is with us. Forever. Our passage this morning comes from 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-10. through 10. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to open up there. Um, I'll be reading it here for you today, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. <clears throat> this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, I am a little bit of a particular person. There are uh, places where things should go, and you put those things in those places. As I've, ex I've explained this to you before. This is not a secret. I've been this way uh, for quite some time, 40-ish years. And uh, when, when, I first, when we first had Zeke, almost 13 years ago, I had to watch him be a baby. And let me tell you a little something about children, if you've forgotten this. Children are very, very messy. And it's true. It's true. I mean, have you ever watched a toddler like feed him or herself? I mean, come on, dude. Your mouth is in the same place every single time. So I don't know why the food is getting everywhere else. And so I would feed Zeke his food. And if somehow like it got somewhere else, you knew what I would do, right? I would take the spoon and what would I do? Scrape the side of the mouth, stick it back in, right? Because that's, that's how you do things. But when Zeke was learning how to feed himself with a spoon, he would miss his mouth. And that meant that food would get everywhere. By the way, Zeke still misses his mouth on occasion. <laughs> He's gotten better. He's gotten better. But you can always tell what he had for lunch about an hour later. And I would, and I would want to clean him up after every single time he missed his mouth. But Nisha finally at one point said, Bryce, you need to just let this go. He's a baby, and when he eats, he's going to get food on his face. It was the same thing with toys. It was the same thing now with clothes and dirty socks and underwear, right? But I wanted him to be cleaner than he was. And I do have to say that as a as a one-year-old or one-and-a-half-year-old, he would feed himself and then scrape his own mouth. So I did something right or created a complex in him. I'm not sure which it is. There is a tough line that we walk, that we see in this passage that I just read to you, that we've, if you've gone to church and you've studied the Bible, you've read this passage most likely several times. But here is the premise God is the light. In him there is no darkness at all. It's a great example, and we're going to talk about it a lot this morning, but we are so used to shades of gray. We are so used to street lights, which fill the world with light. We are so used to uh, the sun and the star. But understand something, that the light that, that, that the writer is talking about here is absolute light. God is the light. In him, there is no darkness at all. We walk with him in the light. 
But if we are walking with him in the light, that means that we cannot do what? Also be in the darkness. You cannot walk in the light and walk in the darkness at the same time. There is no space in between them for us to comfortably walk. You are either in the light or you are in the darkness. Now, if we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus will purify us from all of our sin. So it takes the influence of the darkness and it removes that from us so that when we are in the light, what are we? We are pure. We are children of the light. And we can walk here when we walk in the light and Jesus purifies us. But in order for that to happen, there has to be an acknowledgement on our part. And what is that acknowledgement? That we are sinners and because we are sinners, we are in need of a Savior. We need a purifier. And then listen to how he builds on this. If we confess our sin, we are forgiven and purified from unrighteousness, which in turn means we are fully in the light. And confess here is not as simple as just acknowledging, oh, I have a problem. It has the implication, there's this, this cleansing quality to it. I am bringing the things that are wrong in me into the light. And by bringing those things into the light, what happens? They go away. Now, this is so, this is so unusual for us. Because here's the thing, the things that are dark inside of us, what do we think we need to do with these things? We have to hide them so that no one else will see them and so that they won't be exposed and we won't be exposed. But that's not what happens when you walk in the light. If you walk in the light, these things, you confess them and they are exposed. And when these things are exposed, what happens to them? Jesus washes them away with his blood. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And we have to do this because if we do not do this, we are essentially saying that God, you were wrong in sending Jesus here for me because I'm good. And when you do that, not only are you lying, but you're accusing God of lying. What is the point of all of this? The point is that we are in relationship with a God who is good, pure, and in this case, pure light. He's holy, which in this case means he is untouchable, that there is nothing like him. But remarkably, this God who is pure light wants to be in relationship with us who are not only have some darkness in us, but are also trying to get our other foot into the dark. All the time. This is like my renegade left leg. <laughs> we are not holy. We are sinners and impure. But under, just hear this again. What God asks from us is to say, God, I don't have it all together. God, I have problems, and this is what they are. God, this is the darkness in my heart and in my life. And when we say these things to God, when we lay them in front of God, he takes them away from us. And we can walk in the light. The truth is, church, that God does his part to get us there. Are we willing to do our own? So I, I, I want to reiterate one thing uh, that was on the announcements earlier today, and that is that next Sunday we are having a back-to-school party for uh, all of us out of school. I'm just wishing it was back-to-school. 
That's what it was. That's what it was. An out-of-school party uh, for all of our kids. Uh, we're going to play some games. We'll watch a movie. We'll have food. We'll uh, just have fun here together. So I want to encourage you to invite uh, any of your friends or friends with kids or whoever, and uh, we're just going to get together and, and play and have fun. Uh, and you can pray for uh, all of us parents whose kids are not going to be in school at the end of this week. They're not even making it to June this year uh, before they're out. Uh, So this morning, we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Ephesians. So if you want to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, that's where we'll be today. And if you were here with us last week, um, Paul started to give some instructions uh, for what it means to actually live a life that is modeled after Jesus. And and in the first parts of the book of Ephesians... uh, we covered a lot of concepts, we covered a lot of ideas, a lot of the foundational kinds of things that, that, that Paul believed were necessary for people to, to then take this next step of actually living a life that is modeled after Jesus. And, and, and he did this at the end of chapter 4 by describing how someone lives who does not know God. And he took us through this process, uh, which is one that, that kind of helps us understand how people make decisions. And he said... People that are, and he called them Gentiles in this case, which meant people that do not know God. But he said these people, number one, their hearts are hardened against God. Their hearts are hardened against God, which means that all the things of God are are, are bouncing off. This is kind of how I like to, a hard heart, right? The things of God that come towards a hard heart, they just bounce right off. Uh, So first their hearts were hard, but because their hearts were hard, They were ignorant as to the kind of life that God wanted them to lead. So their hearts weren't open. They didn't have the knowledge that they need. And it says they were darkened in their understanding and separated from him. And the end result is because their hearts are hard and because their minds aren't able to see and understand, then it's kind of a we'll do whatever we want sort of environment. And this is, again, how people act who do not know God or not in relationship with God. And it drove home for us in particular that living a life that is modeled after Jesus doesn't just start with changing your behavior. It's not about you need to do this and you need to stop doing that. Instead, what it illustrates for us is that Jesus changes us from where? The inside. He changes our hearts, which then changes the way that we think, which then changes what we do. And you know, on its very just most foundational level, we know this is true, right? Do an activity that you don't care about, and do, do, then do one that you do. My parents had me do chores when I was growing up, which is not unusual. One of my chores was to take out the trash, and I've shared this with you before because I still find it perplexing. Even all these years later, I was supposed to take out the trash with enthusiasm. And again, like, I I still, I've asked my parents several times, and they cannot give me a definitive answer as to what taking out the trash with enthusiasm means. Am I asked, should I like swing the bag over my head? Am I supposed to sing a taking out the trash song? Here I go, taking out the trash, and I have enthusiasm. Like, I just never got an answer to it. And do you know why? I didn't do it in whatever way they expected me to, because I didn't really care. I mean, did I want trash strewn all over the house? No, of course not. But when I woke up in the morning, did I think, you know what? Today, today, I get to take out the trash. No, I never, ever once thought that. Um, But then again, do something that you really enjoy doing. Do something that, you know, uh, playing with my kids or, uh, you know, these other kinds of things that are fun, it just, it changes the whole outcome, doesn't it? Because, what do we know? Like, something that is in our hearts that we then get to do, it makes a huge difference than something that we just don't even care about. 
So the heart must be changed, must be open to God, to his grace and his will. And this leads to minds that are open. And if you remember last week, one of the important things that we saw was that the, the, the whole idea of, of, of the transforming of the way that we think, okay, and, and, and we, can't, we can't make it just about, okay, so God has changed my heart, now he's transforming the way I think, now I'm going to do good things and not do bad things. Because remember, when we begin to think with, with, with the heart and the eyes of this God, it takes the lid off the box, right? We live our lives before God inside of this box that is limited by what we know is possible and not possible. But when we begin to think with the possibilities of this limitless God, then it's like the lid of the box is taken off and no longer are we just staring at the underside of a box. Instead, when we look up, we see the vast universe and the stars in the sky and the possibilities are so endless. This is what it means to think differently. It's not simply about evaluating choices. It's understanding that this God has changed my heart. He has set me free from the sin and the death that used to control me. And now it's like I'm let out of the cage. Now it's like I'm no longer controlled by these things which were so limiting to me. Now I get to think. I get to see the world. I get to understand things under the umbrella of this God who can do anything. Who can do anything. And he can do anything through me. And when we start to think this way, when our hearts are changed, when, when our eyes are open, when we begin to think differently, then and only then where will our behavior change in a meaningful sort of way. God changes us within and it starts to show on the outside. And the examples that we saw from the end of last week were that you particularly see it in relationship to other people. You rein in your anger. You use your words to encourage. You forgive as Christ has forgiven you. You are kind as God is kind. And again, this just reinforces it for us, that if our hearts aren't changed, we're not going to be very good at loving other people better than we are. You know what I'm saying? Our hearts have to change in order to love other people in the way that was described in chapter 4. And so all of that leads us up here to chapter 5. That your heart needs to be soft, you need to be able to think differently, and, and the way that you treat other people needs to change. And, and he ties it kind of up here for us in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. And this is what he says. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children... And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You know, I'm, I'm sorry to sort of like harp on this one point, but I'm going to harp away. Um. So often, I feel like, again, when we talk about God changing us and changing our behavior and changing what we do, so many of the things I think we identify are personal to us. And what I mean by that is, I'm not going to lie or steal or, you know, look at this or do that, okay? But here's something that I'm really beginning to understand in a new way, and that is that God the things, the kind of behavioral changes that God wants in us, they are almost all related to how we are with other people. That, that is almost, and again, there are things that are deep inside us and personal to us, but I want you to hear this. If God is going to change something about us, one of the first things that's going to change is going to be how we treat other people, how we love other people. We will love other people in a brand new and dynamic way if we are going to follow God's example. After all, look at how he loved us. We love with limitation, even though we don't like to think in these terms. If someone hurts us, what do we do? We stop loving them, or we use this, I love you, but I can't be 
around you. And some of you have been in relationships with people that have taken and taken and taken from you to where it's just like your bucket is empty when it comes to them. And I, I love you, but I'm done. Right? I mean, this is, this is what we do. And this is how we, even in our, in our best times and under our best circumstances, but know this, that God loved us knowing that he would be hurt, rejected. Knowing that we would sit around and decide whether he even exists or not. Knowing that we would treat him in such awful ways, knowing that if he sent his son to this place, it would not be enough for us to kill him. We would have to torture him and kill him. And then deny that he was anything that he said he was. God knew all of these things when he sent Jesus to die for us. This love is different than our kind of love, but it's the kind of love that God is calling us to because this love is life-changing. And the implication is that if you have experienced this kind of love from God, that, that he knows you and he knows what you're like and he knows what you've done and he knows what you think and he knows what your heart is like, if you can grasp that this God chose to love you anyway, and not only that, but to make your life better, to give you what you can't have for yourself, then shouldn't that change how you are with other people too? Yes? Yes, that is the gospel, church. That Jesus loved us, died for us, that he rose again, and that we have freedom from our sin because of it. And this love is a life-changing love. And if, and if our life has not changed, and we can't treat people any differently or love people any better, then we have failed to accept what Jesus has done for us. And we have failed to accept how much God actually loves us. But God does expect our behavior to change as well once we come to know Jesus. He expects this heart change. He expects this thinking change. But he also expects our behavior to change. And this idea is hard for us to wrap our minds around um, a little bit. But there's this, this particular thing. But I, I want you to consider this this morning. Okay? We have grown up in a culture and a society where uh, most of us have heard about God from the time we were children. Um, we have heard about Jesus from the time that we're children. Familiarity with Christianity is not something that we question. In fact, we still look at the world today and look at everyone, let's just say even in our country, and we expect people within our country to have a knowledge of God, of who Jesus is, and to make moral decisions based on that knowledge. We do. This is our expectation. That there are basic ethical and moral uh, standards that everyone should know. Okay? So here is what is different. And this actually, this may help us a little bit too when we look at ourselves today. The people that Paul is writing to grew up in homes and cities that did not know anything about God. I mean, it's possible, very possible, that the Gentile Christians that Paul is writing to have heard about God and Jesus for the first time when they heard the gospel. And have grown up in a society and in a culture and in a place that had no previous knowledge of who he was or what he was about or what he did. Okay? They had all of their own religious practices and traditions. And by the way, within this certain area, right, the idea of serving one God would have been very strange. One God. Because... These cultures and societies, most of them were polytheistic. So there were multiple gods that did lots of things. 
this one was for this, and this one was for that, and this one covered that, and this one was for this and that. And so uh, this is hard for us. I get it. But even the very idea of there is one God that covers all the bases would have been like, you crazy. Right? Like, that's a weird concept to them. And so these things that, that, that Paul is writing to them, he's explaining to them who God is and, and who Jesus is and what Jesus' teachings are and all these things. He's setting the foundation because he knows, and this is something we need to appreciate, he knows that the changes they have to make in their lives are drastic and could in some way seem unusual to them. Because they are going to literally have to think differently than they ever have before. They have to see differently than they ever have before. And honestly, one of the biggest shifts they had to make was in how they looked at their own bodies and how they used their bodies. Uh, Back in chapter 2, he told the Ephesian church, Uh, that they were no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens being built up in a holy temple for God, where God lives by his spirit. And and if we are holy and set apart for God, and God's spirit lives inside of us, then Paul is going to start to make the connection, what you do with yourself matters. And he started, again, most importantly, with how we are with other people, that we need to love other people. But he had to change some other things, uh, some other views about themselves also. So let's look in here in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 3. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. I asked last week what the main problem was. And Christy, what was the main problem? Do you remember? Christy, Christy gave the answer last week. Okay. Sex is a problem. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now, here's the deal. Like, sex is not something we like to talk about at church. Um, it's awkward. Can we just admit that it's, it's something that's pretty awkward? Uh, it's personal. It's intimate. It's more than a little bit embarrassing. Uh, but here's the other thing. More often than not, when... When the church talks about sex, it is almost completely in the negative. Um, and then when someone tries to talk about it in the positive, it feels even more weird. You know, it's like, I feel like it just, it's just creepy. Somehow it comes across as creepy. Um, and I, you know, I, I grew up going to church. And based on everything that I knew and learned, um, I was pretty much terrified of sex. I was. It was like the monster that hid in the darkest corner of my psyche that I had to avoid and stay away from at all costs. So we need to acknowledge something first. And that is that the church does not do a very good job of promoting how sex is a gift that God has given us and is meant to be a good thing. It's meant to be a good thing. Um, and and that's, that's the premise on which other things should be built and other ideas about it, because otherwise we raise kids who don't understand it, and then when something goes wrong, which can happen <laughs> often, they don't know how to deal with it, and quite frankly, the church doesn't know how. The church is terrible at helping people deal with sexual sin. They just are. Because of the shame and embarrassment that we've attached to any sort of sexual sin. More about that in a minute. But what Paul needed to do was to correct this community's understanding of what sex was and the role it should play in their lives 
because they literally had no idea of what a godly view of sexuality was. And that was in part because casual sex and all kinds of different practices were prevalent in the time that these people were living. Um, you, you can go back, and you don't even have to guess, right? There's, there's um, interestingly enough, like all these paintings on like things from Pompeii where um, Mount Vesuvius erupted or different kinds of pottery from the area, and a lot of what it displays, I shouldn't say a lot, some of what it displays are the sexual kinds of things that people were involved with in the time. And in this particular culture, people saw no need for a restraint because if it seemed fun at the time, then you would just do it. But it's not only that. Like, I think we can sort of identify, okay, well, we see that. But it went further than that because some religions, particularly um, some of those like with, with secret initiation ceremonies or uh, they included sexual practice among their rituals. And at one end of the scale, this amounted to little more than prostitution with sort of a religious slant. You would go to the temple and you would, and having sex with a temple prostitute was just part of what you did. And at the other, some religions at the time, they viewed sexual experience as sort of like the highest summit that you could reach in your pursuit, listen to this, of God. Not just yourself, but of God. And those who were enlightened, who had the greater understanding, they could do what they wanted with their bodies. And those who were medieval, <laughs> they didn't use medieval at the time because it didn't exist, but those who were medieval in their thinking, it had not yet happened, uh, those who were in the dark, they thought they had to practice restraint and God has set me free to use my body as I wish. So this is the context into which Paul is writing, you know what? What you do with your bodies, it matters. And he lists for us three different things that we need to keep in mind. He calls it sexual immorality, impurity, and interestingly enough, greed. Immorality, impurity, and greed. Now, again, Paul is not saying that sex itself is bad, although Paul had some different ideas about what you should and shouldn't be doing with your time and whether or not you should even waste your time getting married. Uh, so, but he doesn't, he doesn't think that sex in and of itself is bad, but he does make it clear that sex can be misused in a bunch of different ways. And he doesn't give us a clear, at least in this passage, he doesn't give us a clear sense for what he means by each one. Uh, but let's take a look at them uh, anyway. Number one, sexual immorality. And he doesn't tell us what that means, but he's going to help build the concept of what sexual immorality is in the next section of Scripture that we're not going to get to today. But he follows up this talk about sexual immorality and things by talking about marriage. And in particular, how husbands and wives should honor each other. Okay? And the clear intent as it builds through chapter 5 is that sex is a gift within marriage and if it is used outside of that relationship, it is not only disrespectful to God but also to the person you're supposed to be honoring with your body. By taking that and giving it to someone else, you are dishonoring your wife or your husband. And so casual sex and this whole idea of using sex, again in their culture, using sex for other things is not okay. It is to be used to honor your husband or your wife. And it is for this reason that now purity is tagged onto this. So if, if immorality is using sex for other things other than to honor this relationship, what is impurity? Well, let's put it this way. If uh, you have a ring that is made of pure silver, what else is in it? Nothing. Why? Because it's supposed to be, which means it's only silver. Okay, so what is sexual impurity then? Well, it's anything that gets into this thing that's supposed to be one substance. Anything that gets into that one substance makes it impure, whatever it is. Okay, and so 
again, though it's not defined, we have this idea that in order to be pure, you have to act out this thing within a covenant relationship, within one place. It is one thing for one purpose in one time. It's not one thing to be used in all of these different scenarios and situations. Uh, And anything else that comes into the mix is an impurity. And again, what he's trying to get them to understand, church, is this, that the way that sex is used in your culture to do all of these different things, all of this different currency, all of these different areas, that is not what it's for. It is meant to be something way more special, way more meaningful than this. It's not like going to the movies or having lunch. Right? It's something that is more special and different than that. And you need to start thinking about it in that same way. And then the last, the last one, um, it really had to blow their mind. Like, I just can't, I can't imagine how they thought about all this as they're hearing this and like they've never heard these things before and it's like they're supposed to look at the world in a different way. And then look at this last one. This last one had to absolutely kill them. Sexual greed. Sexual greed. What, what does that mean? <laughs> Sexual greed. Well, we actually we don't have to look too far because it's actually in the Ten Commandments. So if they were to have heard the Ten Commandments, they would have heard this from Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And the general point is this. What is sexual greed? You see something that is not yours, and you want it. You see someone who is not yours, and you want them. And, and I think Virgil makes a good point here. Greed is a step, a little, feels like, I should say, a step further than coveting. Coveting is, you know, I, I really want this, and, but greed, there's, there's sort of this, um, that word has a connotation of like never being filled. You know what I'm saying? Like when you're greedy, you just want more and more and more and more. And greed takes. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't just sit back and look, but it takes. And to the Gentile mind that grew up in these, this idea would have been insane. So wait a second. You mean to tell me that not only can we not go to the temple <laughs> and have sex for God, you're telling me that I can't even like want someone else? That's a lot to take in. <laughs> but Jesus himself said it. I tell you that if you look, if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And here's something, this is interesting. One of my friends put it this way when I was discussing these passages with him this week. He says, you know, someone else's sexuality is not yours to take. And um, so don't look at them in that way. And, And isn't that true that when we are lusting or when greed sets in, we are not looking at a person as a person. What are we looking at them as? They are an object for us to use for what we want. And that thinking has to be reversed. Now, he adds some other important things in here, which let's touch on these. Um, He says, don't use your words for speaking obscenities, foolish talk, or coarse jokes. But there's there's an important reason why you wouldn't do that. What is the reason? This is interesting. This is interesting. Um, When we talk, if you talk, you know, if you've, come to Christ and you used to like speak a certain way, talk a certain way, or you have friends that, you know, that, oh, I can't say those words now that I'm, you know, going to church. That's actually not the point that, that the writer here is making. His point is this, and I want you to think about this. When you are doing these things, okay, so when you're speaking obscenities, foolish talk, or coarse jokes, you're not encouraging someone. You're not using your words to build someone else up. Now, are you tearing them down? Not necessarily. 
but you're putting something out there that's not going to make them a better person or help them get through the day or help them do any of these things. And so, again, he's asking them to think about even what they say in a different way. It's not just, well, I want to be funny or this joke. It's like, are you going to use your words to encourage other people? Don't be fooled, he says. There are a lot of empty words out there, words which sound big and important, which seem to echo and resonate in your culture, but inside of them, they have no life and no truth. And listen, we come across this. You, you talk or, or you have conversations with people who do not believe in God or they do not believe in Jesus. And, and their thoughts are, are sometimes strong and well-reasoned as to why they think the way they do or why they don't believe or why they want no part of it. And Paul, and this is, this is a tough one for us, but I want us to spend a moment on this. So if you, are we still there? Can you bring it back up, Bonnie? Go, go forward. No, go back. No, go back. No, go forward. No, Bonnie. Bonnie, Bonnie, Bonnie. <laughs> Five, three through seven. That's what I'm looking for. He says something at the end of this passage, which is, which is interesting. So it's, that's not it. It was before that one. After that one. <laughs> Bingo! There we go. Look at, well, look at verse 6. No, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. But verse 7, therefore do not be partners with them. Okay, look, that, that's a pretty strong statement, right? I mean, ultimately, what is Paul saying? He's saying, separate yourself if you need to. Why? It's it is a question. It's not a question, and this is where this likes to be spun. It's not a question of you judging other people. It's not a question of you saying I'm right and you're wrong. It's not a question. None of that is on the table. Remember, he started out this section by saying we should love other people as Jesus loves. So that's not on the table a question of judgment. What is on the table is this. You are being called to make decisions that people around you, quite frankly, are not going to make. You are being called to do things in a way that people around you are not going to do them in the same way or for the same reason. And therefore, if you are surrounded by empty words which are telling you, why are you doing that? That's stupid. Why would you do that? That's stupid. Why would you this? Why would you that? Why would you that? Why would you that? You know, and these things are bombarding you, then what should you do? You should separate yourself. Why? Because living this way is hard enough if you're not surrounded by people who are constantly in your ears. But let me tell you something. If you're going to try to have a soft heart, a different mind, and different actions, and you're surrounded by people that are constantly telling you you're dumb, or that what you're doing doesn't make sense, you're not even thinking about this. Have you looked? Then what does he say to do? Give yourself some space <laughs> so that you can begin to live your life in this way. Now, are we comfortable with that? It feels a little off, right? It feels a little off. But, again, we have to think about these people and who they are and what they were experiencing. And look, they can't begin to live a life for Jesus and love them like other people like Jesus and bring other people to Jesus if they can't even stand on their own two feet. Am I right? So what do they have to learn to do first? They've got to learn first who they are. Their hearts have to be changed. Their thinking has to change. They have to start living this different way. And only when they become more mature and solid in Jesus will they be able to be around people that can gripe and moan at them and tell them how they are. 
and stand. Let's pick it up in verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, first things first, we have to remember, because he's been telling them this, and he told them this in chapter 4. You are no longer living your old life. Your old life is gone. You have a new life in Jesus. Okay? So, in in chapter 4, he used the image of, of, of clothing, of putting off your old self and putting on the new self. And in this chapter, he uses an image that is just as effective, this idea of light and dark. And here's what he wants them to know. Again, before you were living in darkness, but now the lights have been turned on. So don't go back and try to live in the darkness. Begin to learn what it means to live in the light. And when you are in the light, what happens to the darkness? It is it is exposed. It's exposed. Have you ever uh, gone on vacation or stayed in a place that you were unfamiliar with and in the middle of the night you have to get up and find the bathroom and there are no lights on, right? How do you get to the bathroom? You feel, oh, it's, it's, by, it's like bumper cars, like all the way there, right? And why is it? it it's because it's dark, And as far as we're concerned, in that space, there are things that are hidden in the dark. Because we don't know where they are. But you turn a light on, and all of a sudden, this unfamiliar space becomes something you can navigate without having to bump your way through. Why? Because the light exposes what is in the dark. It shows it for what it is. Let's read 1 John chapter 5 again, this passage that we read in the intro today. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is the light in him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. And there are some things that we need to bring out about this whole idea. First and foremost um, is this. We are already exposed before God. All of us are already exposed before God. One of the funniest passages in the Bible to me happens at the very beginning. When Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge and all of a sudden they see the world differently, and they hear God coming, and what do they do? They hide from God. They hide from God. That is the most ridiculous game of hide-and-seek in the world, and I've played with like two-year-olds who stand in the middle of the room and cover their eyes. I can't see you, you can't see me. But this is what they do. They hide from God which it's the craziest thing about it, is that there is no point in hiding who you are from God. God already knows. And this idea that God already knows, church, has been used historically in relation to judgment. How many of you remember the image of the all-seeing eye? Do you remember that? This is an old church thing, where, and there were even hymns about the, the all-seeing eye, that God is looking down from you on heaven, and he's seeing everything you do, and so you better get right, sucker. <laughs> right? This was this image that God is looking at you and he sees. And, and again, reflecting on that idea, it's, it's an idea of, of creating shame within us. 
This idea of being exposed, of, of being in the light, that it's about creating shame. And we've used it in terms of judgment, like calling other people out and these sorts of things. But understand what he's saying here. If we apply this idea to judgment, then there is shame involved. God is seeing what you do, and why can't you change this? But if we apply the idea that God sees everything about us to grace, it makes grace that much more phenomenal. It's not just a God who is sitting up there and watching and sees all that we have done and says, again? Again? Instead, it's a God who sees all that we have done and says, I love you. I just wish you would get stop doing this. Can I help you stop? Can I forgive you for this? Can I give you what you need to overcome these things? You know what? I'm not going to let these failures control you anymore. I'm going to set you free from them. A God who sees everything is terrifying in judgment, and he's amazing in grace. He's amazing in grace. That this God who sees has chosen to act in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But one more thing, when he talks about exposing the darkness, he doesn't mean that you are supposed to go out and embarrass people who are in the dark. Um, But what he does mean is that you need to recognize what is right and what is wrong. You need to identify those things and name them because by naming them, you take power away from them by calling them out and saying what they are. And that's something for us to remember this morning. And I said it earlier, and I just want to say one more thing about it. The church cannot be a place where those who struggle with some sort of sexual sin are shamed. It can't be. Number one, sin is sin. All of it separates us from God. And whether you... (laughs) committed some sort of sexual act with a prostitute on your way here this morning, or you simply lied to your husband or wife. Sin is sin. And all of it separates us from God. When I was a youth minister here, um, we took a trip to Mexico, and uh, we were talking through some different things, and I had a guys group that met together, and one of the things that came up in the guys group was their struggle with pornography, and um, we had been praying together about it. And uh, so it came to like Thursday night of our week in Mexico. And um, several of the guys decided in this moment they wanted to confess to the youth group and to ask them for prayers. And so they did this. And then a couple of girls came forward and confessed to the same problem and asked for prayers. And afterwards... Some students who I love so much pulled me aside and said, I don't want to sit next to that person anymore. Or I don't want to be... And I was just like, well, why? Well, what they're doing is gross. It's like, so... This was... (laughs) This was a teenager on one hand trying to understand everything that they were seeing, but... If that doesn't represent how the church treats people with sexual sin, I don't know what does. You're gross. I don't want I don't want any contact with you because of what you've done and because of this and because I think I think that's gross or disgusting. We cannot live out the first part of chapter 5 if that's how we're going to treat people. We can't love people like Jesus loved us if we're going to treat them like they're gross and disgusting because of something that they've done. And if we treat people like they're gross and disgusting because of something that they've done, we've forgotten who we are. We have forgotten who we are. And that's not their fault. That's ours. I have feelings about this. (laughs) And again, many of us who were brought up in the church... Sex is an embarrassing, dirty, wicked, dangerous thing that you avoid. And so consequently, because of that, people either have to hide it and never find help for whatever it is that they're going through, or they bring it forward and are rejected by the Christian community. And the truth is that so many people struggle with sexual sin and body image 
and all those things that go along with this, that the community of Christ has to be a place where people can come for help and healing, where they can find a light in the middle of a dark struggle. Because otherwise, we are leaving them to their own devices. And rejection by a Christian community over something like this will turn someone away from God forever. Forever. So, I have to wrap this up. Um, what, do I think, what do I think we should take away from here, uh, from this this morning? And it's ultimately this. Look, we are to act differently than those around us. And we are to hold up a standard that is different than the world around us. And you're probably, you know, reading through these things and hearing these things this morning. You're like, oh, well, we're just the same. Our world is just the same. We're doing all the same things. We're... But I want to say one thing about that. There are people in your world that have never had a thoughtful conversation with someone about what God wants for them and their bodies. Never. They've been told that this is right and this is wrong. And they've never been told why. No one has ever sat down and explained to them why God wants us to live in a covenant relationship, which we're going to talk about next week. You know why? It's to keep us safe (laughs) and to protect our hearts and to not get us into places where our heart can just be ripped out of our chest and where we feel used for what we look like or what our body is. That's one of the primary reasons God wants to protect us. And I don't know that that's been shared with people that you assume know the difference. I don't know that people have, the church has had thoughtful conversations about a lot of these things and allowed people to start where they are, where they are, and have their hearts changed and their thinking change and their actions change. Instead, we wanted them to change their actions, just like first thing. But think about your own life. That's not how it works, right? And we are not in darkness anymore. We are in the light, and the light is more powerful than the darkness. It does expose those things, but that exposure church helps us to live a better way that Jesus has modeled for us. The things are not exposed to shame us or to make us embarrassed about who we are. They're exposed so that we can deal with them, so that we can find healing and deliverance from them, which is what Jesus came for in the first place. Not to embarrass sinners, but to save sinners. That's why he was here. That's why he went through all the things that he went through. So that we might be free from the things that we cannot be free from. The things that trap us and hold us back. After all, as he said way back in verses 1 and 2, follow God's example therefore as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Listen, in Jesus we have more than we have ever deserved. We have more than we have ever deserved. And as we struggle to live our lives in a way that glorifies God in this place, as we have the opportunity to talk with others who don't even know what it means to follow God, may we be people whose story is not, this is what I don't like about you, but whose story is, this is what I don't like about me. But God has given me in Jesus more than I ever deserved. And it is the love of God in Jesus that has changed me. It is the love of God in Jesus that has changed me. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words which are challenging, these ideas which are not so fun to talk about. But God, I go back to that you want to change our hearts.
We want our hearts to be soft so that we can think differently, so that we can do differently. But God, you call us to love as you have loved us. May we live in the full realization of that love, God, and may that love change who we are on the inside. And as we change on the inside, may who we are on the outside change as well. But God, may this world know that we love them, no matter who they are, no matter where they've come from, no matter what they're dealing with, that we love and we love differently and we love dramatically because we know the love of your son, Jesus, who accepts us as we are and challenges us to live better. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you need for prayers or encouragement this morning, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.